0: hey welcome back to sermon notes michael here alongside garland and our producer josh and we're continuing to work through the book of ephesians it's been such a rich study and we're sort of turning the corner this week garland we finished the first three chapters and chapter four is going to feel a little different yeah, so if you are uh,
1: being in our study, working through this, um, the, the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, uh, most think has uh, a, a big picture outline, we might say. So if you're writing you know, this down in Roman numerals, you've got the introduction, which is uh, Roman numeral one, be chapter one, verses one to two, where Paul introduces himself and greets his audience. Then uh, starting in chapter one, verse three, all the way to the end of chapter three, um is what I just simply call the calling of the church. This is establishing the identity of the church. It is practical. Um, there's a lot of practical things in there that we get to uh, to understand and learn from, but it's uh, largely some massive theological truths about who we are in Jesus, what does it mean to be in Jesus. Uh, there's only one imperative or command in this section, and it's in verse uh, chapter two, verse 11, and it's the imperative to remember. do doesn't even have anything to do um, except to remember something, remember a truth. And so that sort of dominates the flavor of this first section. So, Roman numeral one, intro. Roman numeral two, the calling of the church, which will be chapter one, three through the end of chapter three. Now, the next section begins here in chapter four, and it's a very different flavor. Um, and so, I call this the conduct of the church, and it's going to be chapter four, one through six, nine. And it's loaded, with commands, loaded with imperatives. You'll see them in there. Um, he's going to drop all the way to as pragmatic as a household code. Like, how do we work this out in the home? And so it's it's tends to have a pragmatic, practical flavor, um, still, still tons of theology in it, theological truths in it. I think we can overdo it by saying one's theological, one's practical, all theology is practical. Um, but Imperatives dominate this section. And then chapter 6, 10 through 20 is what I call the charge of the church. Paul crescendos this letter by painting a battle scene. And he says, you're in this battle. And uh, then he has this closing greeting. So after after chapter 6, verse 20. And so there's your big picture of the book. And we're turning the corner here. So when you see in chapter 4, verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord, then it's the Greek word un, therefore. uh, That is a significant change. And he's now going to do a little bit different uh, kind of dance here in this section. So uh, box or double underline. I, I double underline transition words like then or therefore, and it's similar to how Paul will use the the then or therefore in Romans chapter twelve verse one. Therefore, in light of everything we've discussed so far, now let's talk and how this works out. And so just note that as you're leading people, as you're leading small groups, if you're just in your personal study, uh, how these letters are structured. It's important to see, get our arms around the forest
0: before we dive into the trees. Yeah, that's good. And so this week in our teaching, in our discussions in our community groups, we'll be in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4. Um, Give us a a snapshot, a summary, what are some things to note um, as we look at this Particular passage together, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16.
1: Yeah, um, I think right off the bat, um, it's worth just noticing... It's worth underlining uh, the idea of unity or oneness. And so the, the idea will dominate this section of Ephesians uh, 4 all the way through 6-9, but especially here. And so um, as you notice that, you, can, you might just mark, in fact, I did this in my Bible, uh, verses 4 through 6, right above a little heading, just put unity. And then 7 down through verse 13, you can put diversity. And then back in 14 and following, you can write unity. And so that just kind of helps you see how Paul is working this. You can see that. Uh, to live together, make every effort to keep the unity of the, of the spirit. Uh, verses four to six, there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one... Co- you can see the repetition of one there. But then he he has a very... Um, it's, it's not a play on words, but Paul's really careful. Notice the repetition of one, 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 one in four through six, highlighting unity. Then in seven, he says, but to each one. Now he's going to show the distinction or the diversity within the church, and nothing summarizes that better than Paul's use at the end of our section down there in 14 through 16 of talking about a body. He's going to say this is all to build up the body of Jesus. And what's a body? It's a unified thing. It's a single organism made up of many parts. And Paul will use this uh, in, in other places. You can look at 1 Corinthians 12, for example, and Paul loves to use this as a picture of what we are. We are, we each play a role as distinct people who have been gifted in this thing called the unified body of Christ, or what we call the church, but we're one thing. And we we have to kind of understand that. And that's where we're going to go this Sunday. So we're gonna we're gonna dive through it this Sunday, looking at Christ's victory, which we're gonna to have to look at in a minute. Uh, what does that mean by Paul's quote from Psalm sixty eight? We're gonna see why this victory is so significant. What it tells the watching world. And then we're gonna to have to see. We're gonna do this on Sunday morning at least. Um, how how demanding what Paul is asking? We read this, I think, and go, yeah, we want to be nice. Let's be nice people. But when you place yourself in a you know, uh, a house church in Asia Minor in the first century, or a small group or a church here in the modern world, where people come from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ways of thinking, and then you say, get along. That's pretty demanding. That can be really difficult. And so we're going to see that this passage has some teeth, and it's going to demand something of its hearer.
0: My guess is that their tendency in the first century would be the same as our tendency today, which would be to hang out with people who think like I think, and not to put myself in situations where Mm -hmm. I'm going to hear divergent opinions, different views, Mm -hmm. different worldviews, different ways of thinking of things. And so, yeah, I think it's still a a challenge very much today. Um, And I imagine that they had similar ways to avoid the challenge just as we do today, um, if we're being honest with ourselves. So one of the things I noticed, Garland, just looking at this passage, preparing for our men's Bible study, community group. Um, There's some places that it gets a little thorny and the commentators don't all agree on how to handle some of this. Um, What are some places in here that, especially those who are planning to lead a discussion in their community group may find some different opinions and how should they approach those passages? Well, this is why this podcast exists, actually. We, we've we got lots
1: of things that oftentimes um, are really important. Um, we just don't have the time on a Sunday morning, uh, but they're important to understand or to note. And uh, the first one jumps off the page here in verse 8. And so we'll hit three big ones here. I won't have time to get into them on Sunday morning. And in fact, what I'll say is we have a Sermon Notes podcast for that, so go listen to it. So that might be how you got here. The first one's verse 8. Um, Paul quotes... Um, kind of, it kind of comes out of nowhere. He quotes from Psalm sixty-eight. It's actually verse eighteen, and the psalm is a, we might say, it's a victory processional. It, de- it describes a victory processional of Yahweh as he is ascending back to the tabernacle or the temple. As he ascends up, he's lauded and congratulated, and he has led a host of captives from a. It's a, it's a military victory scene. Uh, conquerors would. When they would win the battle, they would march back into their capital city with the plunder and the captives. And the, the the psalmist is saying, "Imagine the scene: Yahweh's victory over his enemies." And what makes it thorny? Here's here's the issue. If you go read Psalm sixty eight, verse eighteen, and then you read what Paul does here, you go, "Huh? I'm not exactly sure how you got there." Maybe. The biggest things that jump out are um, in Psalm 68, it's addressed to you. you always addressed in the second person, you, and Paul has adjusted it to a he, third person story, which that, that may not be that big of a deal. Uh, the, the biggest thing that throws people off is in Psalm 68, it's he receives gifts from people. Usually the, uh, the plunder would be brought to the king and placed before his throne, and that's the picture that's placed before us in Psalm 68. But here... What Paul's done is he has he gave gifts to people, um, and he's going to make Christ the centerpiece in the very next verse, which will another thorny issue we'll talk about here in just a moment. So uh, there's a, several ways to try to understand what Paul's doing here. Um, it doesn't exactly match up with our Hebrew manuscripts or our Greek ancient Greek manuscripts, and so uh, oftentimes when we have an issue like this, we can see that oh he was just using the Greek, but that's not the case here uh, either. And so most uh, many scholars think that what Paul is doing here is there's a way that rabbis would interpret passages. Um, and we can see this in later rabbinical writings that none of, none of you cares, care about. Uh, they're called the Targums. And these uh, represent a way of teaching Old Testament passages, teaching the Hebrew scriptures, um, and doing so with a, I might say, a relevant and near purpose in mind, and that Paul may be employing that kind of a strategy here. It could be that he's got a, a manuscript that reflects a tradition of understanding this instead of instead of giving gifts he receives that we just haven't found. And maybe Paul has a a manuscript that reflects that this gets us into, um, Old Testament text critical issues and uh, things that I think are really fun and cool and important that may make some uh, uncomfortable. If that's you, uh, we do have a podcast on Out of Curiosity, which is about how we got the Old Testament and can we trust our Bible. And I'd suggest to go and listen to that. But uh, Paul is is employing some kind of an interpretive technique here to take this picture of Yahweh's victory and apply it to Jesus. And it gets even more thorny in verse Nine. So, any questions on that one before we move to the next one?
0: Well, I would just throw in this thought: um, we, whenever someone's quoting something in the New Testament or in the whole Bible, um, they didn't have quotation marks, right? And so, um, it could be that that if were Paul here to defend his use of this text, he might say, "Well, I was actually just referring to that, not quoting directly mm-hmm. from it." You've got the quotation marks in an odd spot. Mm-hmm. Um, the I feel like I always say this when we have these conversations. What I don't want is for these kind of technical conversations to cause anyone to leave this podcast with doubts. Can I trust the Bible? Do the Old Testament and New Testament line up? Um, Man, a lot of smart people have spent a lot of time thinking about this and have come up with some different possible answers. Uh, But what we do know for certain is the Holy Spirit inspired every part of this. And so we can take this um, to mean what it says, even if we have a little difficulty understanding exactly how Paul came up with it. So. So, so yeah. Let's take us into verse nine, Garland. Um, what does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. <laughs> yeah, I'm laughing because uh, you know what
1: a what a loaded question that is. Um, there is essentially two options. Okay, so what does it mean? Paul Paul takes this. Um, uh, Old Testament quotation, and then he begins to interpret it in an unusual way. Here he's going to apply it to Jesus. And so this is another technique. It's called a pesherim, um, and this is something that uh, ancient Jews did, and we can see these especially in what, what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls now. Um, and Paul's doing what seems like what these uh, scribes were doing as well. And in so doing, he says, uh, okay, as he ascends that must mean that he also came down. Because if he has to go back up to his throne, he must have come down. And the question centers on, what does he mean by, the, I'm reading NIV here, that he also descended to the lower, and here's what the, e, the NIV does, earthly regions. Um, different translations. Let me pull up the NASB. The NASB does, let's see, that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. Okay, yeah, the ESV says the lower the lower regions, comma, the earth. The earth. Okay, so all of them are taking a little bit of an interpretive um, flavor there. What we're doing is we're, the the, the word's not important for these uh, grammatical categories. We're taking what's called a genitive case in Greek, which is a way of expressing, usually that expresses in English of or from or some kind of a relationship. Um, and the question becomes, the word's the earth, or in this genitive case, it's expressing relationship. And it can express a relationship, we might say, from or of. And so when we take that interpretation, here's what uh, there's, there's I said there's two, here's what it would be meaning. Um, he ascended, but it also means that he descended to the lower parts. And then what we might have to say there is, i.e., under the earth, lower than. The earth. And people following this tradition have said that this would be a passage that gives us uh, some kind of an insight that Jesus has gone and proclaimed his victory in the place below the earth, the place of the dead. In the Hebrew understanding of death, a person dies, they are buried, we put them down there in the ground, and they go to the place of the dead. If you look at the Old Testament, we don't have this fully formed out concept of going up to heaven. They go down to the, to the lower parts of the earth. And some have said this would be a passage indicating that Jesus has gone there and proclaimed his victory over death. The other option, and the ESV is spelling that out, is that the, the earth is more explaining the lower parts. So lower parts, comma, meaning... The earth, And what that would be highlighting, this interpretation would mean that what Paul has in mind is not that Jesus went and proclaimed some victory in what we would probably call Sheol or the place of the dead. What we have in mind here is his incarnation, his coming down to the earth itself in his life and death and ministry and resurrection. So uh, those are two interpretations. Um, The grammar doesn't solve it. Okay, so uh, really smart people go with option one. Really smart people go with option two. I favor... Option two, that this is his incarnation. Um, and so I'm going to end the sermon as of now. I may change this with uh, going to Philippians 2, this picture of Jesus descending so that he could ascend. Uh, I think it's a similar idea there, um, but uh, this isn't a Philippians podcast. So there's the second thing. Uh, thoughts on that
0: one. How are we feeling over there? Oh man, I love that. I, I totally agree with where you're at. And I actually think, you know. yes, I'm, I'm not saying that there's no case to be made um, that he... He went to Sheol or whatever you want to say. But I feel like the editors of both the NIV and the ESV are edging us toward what you're saying. And those are some godly, trustworthy Bible scholars who are sort of tipping their hand a little bit on how they read this, Mm -hmm. by the way they translated it. And I would also say, um, when we look at the fact that it's hooked to verse 8, man, those captives, that's humanity, captive to sin that he came to rescue including me and so yeah, that reading makes a lot of sense to me. If you want uh, option
1: one to see maybe a cross reference, the place you would look would be First Peter chapter three, and you'll pick it up at about verse eighteen and read through the uh, through verse twenty two. Um, and 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 some take that reading. Uh, yeah, this is why you go to sermon notes to so get all this nerdy stuff you didn't think you wanted. Our third issue is you didn't even know you wanted it. Uh, the third issue is what do we do with this list in verse eleven? Um, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. I'm not going to have much time on Sunday to wade into this. Um, there are some that would see these four or five, uh, four or five groups of gifted people as describing, we might call it, appointed church offices or right. something like that. The argument for that, uh, to, to me, is is weaker than the argument that this, this is Paul envisioning gifted people that he's given for the church with supernatural gifts that God has given. And we see this play, We see this kind of language in other passages, namely 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, uh, where God is, is giving distinct multiple gifts to the church to fight for this thing called unity, to help the church serve each other. And so we're going to need each other. In this case, he's given the apostles and prophets. Now we've established who they are over in chapter 2. When we read chapter two, we saw that the apostles and the prophets, those are the foundation stones by which the church is built on. And in chapter two, it seems like it's the, we might say the first century apostles and prophets, the people who were dispensing the truth, the revelation of God in what we would call our New Testament. Um, And so if we carry that language over to here, then apostles and prophets would be first century things. Uh, And the evangelists and pastor teachers would be gifted people to spread the good news of Jesus and to build up the church through shepherding and teaching. Others would view all of these as roles, gifted people that play out their roles in the church, people that are sent out, people that proclaim and can see, uh, we might say can see a place where conviction may be needed. That's how the prophets often work in the Old Testament, people who spread the gospel message and who pastor and shepherd. All of it though, this is one of our favorite verses of fellowship, is going down to verse 12, and we don't want to miss it, Even on this podcast, Uh, I actually won't have much time on Sunday to spend much time on verse 12, but all of the gifted people in the church, the gifted leaders in the church, they exist. This is a fellowship staple. You've been around here. You know it. Not for their sake, not so that they can go do all the work, not so that they get all the accolades. No, they actually exist to get God's people into the work of serving each other. Um, Notice why so the body of Christ might be built up. And so we're, it's a staple verse around here. Uh, now we can see it in its context. This fight for unity is something I think sometimes drops out of the picture when we kind of quote from this, and I love, I love this verse. It's, it's a life verse uh, for many of us at Fellowship. But now putting it back in its context, we can see the kind of the extra skin on it. And it's really compelling that God wants to build a unified church But it's not with some greats up here and all the little minions down there. No, he wants to build a unified church with unity and diversity, a body. And uh, when we do that, then we attain to the full measure of the Son of God. And wow, that's a cool picture. So um, lots of work through this week. Um... We hope that this is helpful for you. So any la- any words here,
0: Michael, as we went through a whirlwind here? Oh, man, I just think what a rich passage. I feel certain that our community group leaders are going to get what we're praying for, which is um, just great, rich discussions that are anchored in God's word. And uh, Garland, looking forward to the teaching. And I think we're all praying that verse 16 will be true of us, that the whole body will be joined and held together together. Um, To grow and build itself up in love as each part does its work. And so, man, you take that and Ephesians 4.12, the equipping of God's people for works of service, and that is fellowship's model of ministry. Every person discovering their gifting, their role to play in this kingdom expansion that God's doing here through our church, through our groups, through the people that we encounter. And so, yeah, what a rich passage. Garland, thanks for the work you've put into it. And uh, thanks for listening. Those of you out there listening to Sermon Notes, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time right here.